So this is my personal opinion, not the opinion of the Maryland Department of Health. As long as drugs are illegal, people who use them will be considered criminals. And all of our work to reduce the harm of that is, are just band-aids. As long as there's still a stigma of using and as long as people continue to hide it and internalize that stigma, we're just addressing the harms of bad drug policy instead of fixing that bad drug policy. When we talk about drug policy as race policy or drug policy as immigration policy, one thing I see in that is that we need to create less ways for people to be initiated into the criminal justice system, which further perpetuates the harms, and also people with, who don't have a, a clear immigration status. If we just decriminalize drugs, then we kind of like address a lot of those issues as well at the same time. BrightSpark is a podcast about harm reduction. In this podcast series, we interview people doing the bold, innovative, and necessary work that is saving lives and fighting against the stigmatization of drug users and drug use. I'm Erin Yankee, a documentarian and radio producer. And my name is Alec Dunn. I'm a nurse and a harm reductionist. This is BrightSpark number two, operationalizing harm reduction. In this episode, we interview Erin Haas, a longtime volunteer and advocate for harm reduction services. For the last few years, Erin has been working as the Assistant Director in the Office of Prevention at the Maryland Department of Health. As Assistant Director, I have responsibility for some specific projects, mainly focused on harm reduction. Uh, Within this office, we work on everything along the spectrum of prevention, uh, from primary, like preventing first use, also then have programs that address downstream prevention where people are already using drugs and we are reducing the harm of that substance use and trying to create uh, systems in which they can be linked to treatment. So a lot of my day-to-day is supporting staff, helping them with uh, the projects that they oversee. A lot of the work we do is operationalized by local health departments, so communicating a lot with those partners as well as other partners on things and got a couple of long-standing programs that I've been responsible for. I've been working here for four years now, and I started out working on fatality review projects where I supported local health departments again in creating multidisciplinary teams to look closely at individuals who died of a drug overdose. And by making it multidisciplinary, they could kind of combine information about all the different systems that that person might have touched or, you know, the different providers that the person would have interacted with throughout their life. By piecing together that story, providers in the room could kind of see, like, the trajectory of this person's drug use, what led up to their death. That project has helped to identify some, like, system-level gaps that could be filled to better support people. The best example out of it is, is identifying ways to strengthen referral systems especially when people are in vulnerable times, like when they leave a treatment program unexpectedly or they just get out of jail. Typically, those times are associated with, like, they just had a brief period of abstinence, so they're just at heightened risk for an overdose since their tolerance may have decreased during that time. I also began working on the naloxone distribution program. Naloxone is a prescription medication um, because it works to specifically reverse the effects of opioids on the opioid receptors in the body. 
And so you have opioid receptors that when filled, you know, help to mitigate the sensations of pain, but when overfilled, cause respiratory depression and overdose. And naloxone is just an antagonist to those opioids and just literally kicks them out of the receptors that then reverse what those opioids were doing. And and if someone's entering respiratory depression, it takes them out of it, like it, it gets them to breathe again. So it's really a miracle drug in that it doesn't do anything else. There's no side effects. It's not going to hurt you if someone gives you naloxone and you're not having an opioid overdose. Its only sole purpose in life is to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. I just started working here at the time and was really part of building the structure for that. What would a naloxone training look like? And running that by, you know, different stakeholders and partners. Then I generally provide a lot of ongoing technical assistance and support, particularly around questions related to policy. Can we give naloxone to minors, for example, is like a question I get a lot in my inbox. Yes, you can give naloxone to, to minors. Anyone can access naloxone now in Maryland, <laughs> which is really great. Um, we've had to put explicitly in law that naloxone can be prescribed to anyone who is at risk for an overdose and anyone who might be likely to witness an overdose. A big thing that we do is support naloxone distribution with some funding. And we've been fortunate to have like a decent amount of funding in Maryland to support naloxone. Um, So we make funding decisions out of this office. Um, It goes directly to local health departments. Um, And that's just because the state doesn't really have any other way to fund like a nonprofit or another group without going through like a really lengthy procurement process. We've taken advantage of the quick way that we can grant money to a local health department. We've had some opportunities through that funding to focus on specific um, areas where we want to expand access to naloxone. Um, that would be like in, uh, for example, I'll just one example on detention centers. We had a specific project where we had local health departments partner with their local detention center to train staff in how to train inmates to use naloxone. And so while somebody is in, in the detention center, they receive training, and then upon release, they get a naloxone kit to take home with them. So those programs would have to have a provider on site to write that prescription and kind of establish that medical relationship with somebody. So by nature of um, the recipient uh, using drugs, using opioids, they're at risk for overdose, so provider can then prescribe it to them. And what we've done, what a lot of states have done in the, over the past five years Um, which has been remarkable that states have changed uh, naloxone access laws so dramatically in a short period of time. Pretty much all states now have in statute some sort of expanded access to naloxone. What that has allowed is to take naloxone out of that patient-provider relationship. So it allows for community access to it. Now a provider can write a prescription for naloxone to someone who, one, might not be at risk for an overdose, so that person's not going to be using naloxone on themselves. That prescription that you're writing to someone isn't going to get ultimately used on themselves, uh, which some insurance companies still have trouble understanding. Um, You know, you're going to use it on a stranger. The only like comparison we have is the EpiPen. You're going to be prescribed an EpiPen that you're, you're getting that prescription medication that you're then going to use on somebody else in an emergency situation. Laws have allowed us to do that, given some legal cover to doing that. Also, In Maryland and and in most states, but not all, uh, we have the ability to establish a standing order. So the medical provider can 
delegate the authority to hand out dispense a medication to a lay person. So we have the ability in Maryland at the program level, lay volunteers, lay being like they're not a medical professional, they're not a licensed dispenser, they can carry naloxone and train somebody how to use it and hand it out on behalf of that training program. Could naloxone ever be changed into an over-the-counter drug? Mm -hmm. EpiPens as a good example, but, you know, epinephrine actually is kind of dangerous if used poorly, whereas (laughs) naloxone is more like Benadryl or something that you can just go buy at CVS. Yeah, there's a standing order where pharmacists can dispense naloxone under the standing order that they don't have to have an individual prescription for each person that comes in and asks for it. That's as over-the-counter as we can get in Maryland, where you can walk into a pharmacy, you can ask the pharmacist for naloxone, and they can provide it to you and bill your insurance for it. It would be absolutely my recommendation to the federal government to (laughs) uh, make naloxone over-the-counter. It would expand access greatly and make a big difference. One, because you can just take the provider completely out of it. Programs can then order naloxone in bulk. Also, those who have the resources to do so can walk into a pharmacy, not have to talk to a pharmacist, and just go down the appropriate aisle and buy it in a more anonymous, low-threshold way. And that's something that like the um, FDA would have to decide to have happen. Yes, the FDA would be the federal agency that would make that determination. And we're kind of doing that in all but name in a number of states, you know, where naloxone exactly. is widely available. Mm-hmm. That's what's been so, like I said, remarkable that, yeah, states have developed these workarounds <laughs> to something that could be easily fixed by a, a federal determination. Going back to your work doing data collection, what are some trends that you've seen developing with overdose in the state of Maryland? Uh, Well, in Maryland, our overdose deaths are driven by fentanyl, and that's been the case since 2013 when fentanyl first kind of emerged in our overdose data. Since then, it has increased 30-fold. You know, we've definitely seen a a leveling of prescription drug overdoses, particularly as the prescription drug monitoring program has gone into effect. There's been a lot of effort around that kind of supply control prescribing has leveled off and deaths related to that have decreased. I think that's mainly attributed to a lot of the street-based outreach that's done in Baltimore City. They're doing outreach multiple days a week, and they give out like thousands of doses of naloxone. And they'll go to uh, parts of the city where they know overdoses have taken place. They get that information from both EMS where they have like a daily report of where emergency medical services is responding to overdose calls, as well as from community members, from the people that they're talking to as they're doing outreach, or just outreach staff who have their own network of friends and people who are using drugs. Um, They'll have anywhere from two to six outreach staff in a van. They'll all have backpacks with naloxone in it, and they'll walk around like um, um, a designated block area, uh, just approaching people, talking to them about overdose prevention, and training, doing a quick training on how to use naloxone, uh, giving them the naloxone, and then also just being available if they have any other questions or need any connection to other resources. I first met you at the Needle Exchange in Pittsburgh. So how has your experience of doing street-level harm reduction informed your current work in the halls of harm reduction bureaucracy? 
I wanted to work in government because I wanted to better understand why it's so bad <laughs> and like why terrible laws get written. I guess my intention was always to return to direct service work or street level work and then be able to better communicate with government people or be able to advocate for better laws. So definitely the experience of working in Pittsburgh because the needle exchange there is operating under like an emergency declaration around HIV. And someone could just as easily like take over the declaration. It's a citywide rule that's kind of in control of the city government. And a state law would be a lot more secure, it's a lot harder to change. Being in that environment in Pittsburgh helps motivate me to, to go into policy. And that experience and kind of staying to connected to what it's like to literally hand somebody a needle, like to, to do that, having that experience and having that kind of like shape how I think about policy and the direction that I set programs up has had a huge impact. It's a, it's a hard question to answer because I could go on and on. I mean, my experience at Prevention Point just like really shaped how I came to know what harm reduction was and how I came to like appreciate harm reduction and apply it to my personal and professional life. And I try to like implement programs with those values, like one to make them low thresholds, um, accessible for people. So for example, like setting up a bureaucratic state naloxone program, we made the application two pages, super, super simple so that any nonprofit organization without a lot of resources or with no staff could not be intimidated by it, fill out the application and feel like naloxone distribution is easy in Maryland. I mean, we're still not probably there yet, <laughs> but we've, you know, I've gone back, we've chipped away at the law three times now and like changed our program policies continuously trying to make it easier for people and organizations to access naloxone. So I'm always trying to like put myself on the other side and having had that experience of working on the other side and volunteering on the other side has helped keep that a priority. And then secondly, just trying to like think of ways of supporting people who use drugs, elevate that community as like a community to listen to and be a part of our decision-making at the state. And that's, that's probably the biggest challenge uh, has definitely informed my conversation about this and my ability to, to know that it's possible to engage them in state decision-making and, and state activities in a meaningful way. It's just definitely effort and process. And can you talk about the rural-urban-suburban divide that's in Maryland? The Baltimore City work that you're doing is really intensive and on the ground and as a population center. That makes sense. Thank you for asking that question, Max. I'm talking a lot about counties, and there's 24 jurisdictions in Maryland. Baltimore City is its own city jurisdiction. So it's really 23 counties and Baltimore City. All of the counties, they each have their own health department happening in that county. All the health departments have expectations for delivering similar services, and the state has traditionally uh, granted down money and to health departments to provide those specific services. I mentioned at the beginning, I work within Behavioral Health Administration. We've traditionally been the pass-through from the federal government with uh, what's called block grant dollars uh, that go to the states, and then we in Maryland distribute that to all of the local health departments. So they've really been expected to provide direct access to treatment services um, to kind of be a service provider for a long time. A lot of that has shifted because of the Medicaid expansion. Maryland is an expansion state. It's got its own health insurance marketplace. Simultaneous to that, 
O'Malley, the governor at the time, made the decision to move our substance use services into a fee-for-service model rather than this granting of funding to local health departments to provide free services for people who needed it. Um, That's like a a big structural shift that took place and had a huge, huge impact on the more rural jurisdictions that had fewer resources where there wasn't the same opportunities for like the private sector to maybe fill some gaps as there have been in other more populated parts of the state. Um, And so a lot of the more rural jurisdictions have had to like completely shut their services down. That had a big impact. And generally, the rural parts of the state, which would be like the eastern shore and like western Maryland, the northern part of Appalachia, feel like they're doing their own thing, uh, especially being somebody from who represents the, the state on these things. You know, I couldn't possibly understand the needs of uh, the eastern shore. You know, it's like they've had to really fight for their resources in a lot of ways, defend their needs, and then kind of like operate in their own way. And banded together around that. There's definitely frustration at a lot of resources being directed to Baltimore City. At the same time, Baltimore City is a place with the most need. There's the highest number of overdose deaths and absolutely the the largest burden just with non-fatal overdoses and, and with the number of people who are using drugs in the city and the huge homeless population. There's a VA hospital in Baltimore City they serve a lot of veterans and a lot of organizations around that, serving that population. And so there's a lot of need <laughs> there. It's kind of tough to navigate these politics when thinking about where to direct efforts and, and funding. And definitely most of it goes to the city, but there's such a need to think creatively about how to address the dearth of services in the rural counties, particularly with harm reduction. Um, Baltimore City has been a great place to be as a harm reductionist. They've had a needle exchange program since 1994, and they've had a naloxone program since 2004. But otherwise, there are absolutely no needle exchange services in the rest of the state. We passed uh, an expansion a couple of years ago that gave the legal authority to any local health department or any community-based organization to start a needle exchange program. Otherwise, the existing law really only gave authority to the Baltimore City Health Department to do so. With the new law that allows for any program to start outside of the city, and the state's been putting a lot of effort behind that. They've established a process for providing support to new needle exchange programs. They hired a full-time coordinator to provide training and technical assistance to new programs. They've also put some money behind it, supporting capacity development in a number of counties. Portland is so heavily gentrified that I think there's been some similar challenges to trying to deliver needles, naloxone, harm reduction supplies to people rurally as there is even in urban centers now where lots of pockets of people who use drugs used to concentrate or have some density is being dispersed by gentrification. I was thinking that there's some similar challenges in trying to get the same thing. I mean, we know there's lots of um, people who need harm reduction services in rural areas. And I think the challenge always is to figure out how to get the supplies and services to those people, right, without having areas where people are congregating or even feel safe coming to. Absolutely. And Baltimore City almost feels easy in a lot of ways. There's definitely, like, clear areas where there's open selling of drugs and and heavy foot traffic 
But you think of a rural county where there's a lot more people dying in homes, you know, of overdose or um, dying alone. And how do you identify where people are and, the, and then the points at which you might be able to bring them supplies if transportation is an issue. They've made it work in other rural states, though. You know, mobile services are probably going to be the biggest and, like, secondary exchange. You have one kind of representative, I guess, of a community who can who has the ability to go to the exchange and they can pick up for a large group of people and take it back. Is there any other projects or developments that you're excited about that are happening in other states that you feel like could be a model for what's happening in Maryland? Oh, it's like three ideas. (laughs) And these are things that I'm like currently trying to work on. In North Carolina, there is an EMS provider that is actually delivering syringes to people kind of on an on-call basis. That's kind of a form of mobile exchange that's really innovative and amazing. But there's two other things. One is is another EMS project. EMS providers, paramedics or EMS technicians, uh, EMPs, leave a naloxone kit with somebody who survived an overdose or with their friends and family who are at the scene of the overdose called like naloxone leave behind. And I'm really interested in this. I hosted a a call with a number of other states uh, that have started this type of project. North Carolina is one of them. Washington State and Utah and Missouri have also like kind of come a long way with this project um, to the point where EMS has kind of taken it on just as like one example of something they can do that's beyond treat and transfer. They want to provide a lot more services to people. The Naloxone Leave Behind has just opened up this idea of what role can EMS play to like connect the public health infrastructure that we have to take care of people who are suffering from addiction or who are in need of these different resources. Another project is the funding of fentanyl testing strips. This originated at Insight, the safe injection facility in Vancouver, Canada. Someone just had the amazing idea to just order like urine testing strips for fentanyl and see if they would work on a sample of drug broken down in water. And Johns Hopkins University funded a study where they looked at the efficacy of those strips compared to other testing equipment. They actually had the Baltimore Police Department Crime Lab treat these samples that were supposed to have fentanyl in it, and they tested, they used these urine test strips in the sample, and then they also compared the consistency of results of that urine test strip to all the fancy testing equipment that they had in their lab <laughs> to just show how effective it was. And it turns out it does a really, really good job. It's like 98% effective at, at identifying whether or not there's fentanyl in, in a sample of drug. It's all like the preliminary research around fentanyl testing strips is really exciting. Um, it just feels kind of like a moment where the data is staring me in the face. That, like these could have a huge impact on behavior change. The results that I've heard at conferences from the study in Vancouver showed that people are 10 times more likely to change their behavior if it is a, a positive test, which led them to that behavior change then, whether they're using less drug or they're using more slowly, then reduce their risk of overdose by 25%. So my thought is like, if we get testing strips distributed throughout Baltimore, if, we've got a, if we have like 50,000 test strips in Baltimore and people start using them and changing their behavior, could we see the same kind of impact at a population level? I know in Pittsburgh, they've been handing them out at the 
needle exchange program there. And some of the people that they've talked to, they did a casual survey. And the results there were really interesting that even those who they kind of assumed that fentanyl was in their drug supply, and even though they assumed it was there, 70% of those people still used less if it tested positive. So there's just like something about the confirmation of that test. Pretty much everyone at this point assumes that they're buying fentanyl. It's very hard to find heroin anymore in the city. But regardless, this test seems to have a big effect on like how people are really thinking about what they can do to, to use more safely. The bigger surprise that there's been some um, of the fentanyl testing strips at one of the needle exchanges here is when people find that there isn't fentanyl actually in the drug supply. Even out here where black tar heroin seemed to have been something that was harder for people to cut with fentanyl even now that we're finding um, fentanyl is in test positive in most of the fentanyl test strips people do. Yeah, synthetic opioids, um, the cool harm reductionist like Tracy Green and Dan Ciccaroni have been doing research on American heroin supply and fentanyl particularly since it first hit the scene. What I hear over and over is that synthetic opioids is the new normal. This is an environment that we need to adapt to. Street-level testing, like user testing, individuals like testing their own stuff, that's just one piece of improving surveillance of drugs. One thing we've talked a bit about is trying to have a surveillance system that combines the two where we can see what police are seizing or what where um, people are, who are dying of overdose, like what they're dying of and where, see if that lines up with information that we get through doing street outreach and having ongoing qualitative data collection with people who are using and what they're buying, where they're buying it. That can be done in a protected way where we can get that information from basically people who are living it and then combine, see if that aligns with where people are dying and then have this feedback loop. Also testing seized samples, again, by law enforcement in the lab. And then we have street-level testing. Is it all going to line up? And can we create some sort of feedback loop from the street to people and trying to make decisions about where to target naloxone training or trying to understand this evolving drug market that's having such a big impact on how people are using and, and their risk of dying? When you've talked about going out and, and tracking areas where the, you've been finding more overdoses, that seems like it's probably through certain drug supply networks that are coming out into certain areas or communities. And I'm curious if there would ever be some kind of consumer feedback revolt among people who are consuming the drugs to people selling the drugs, you know, stop selling this shit that's causing everyone to overdose. Do you have any mm -hmm. thought about that or any uh, experience with something like that? The only thing I can point to is the research that I mentioned earlier um, out of Johns Hopkins University. Um, they have a great website about it. They not only like tested how well these fentanyl test strips work in comparison to other testing equipment, um, but they also did interviews with a lot of different people, with people who use drugs, with people who sell drugs, people who work at the needle exchange van in Baltimore City. They talked to public health officials, and that was to get feedback on whether people would be interested in using a test strip, what their reaction would be if it tested positive, how willing they would be to respond to it. So at kind of all levels, like people responded really positively. Particularly, I bring this up to talk about the interviews with people who use and people who sell. Both groups didn't express 
those concerns. There was some initial concern from uh, some people working at the needle exchange that they heard that there would um, be pushback from people who sell drugs. I don't, there was wariness that like public health people would kind of even get involved in that dynamic at all. <laughs> if someone's like testing their stuff and go back to their dealer, could that be potentially creating like an unsafe situation? I don't know. I think, I think that was like kind of the general concern. But the qualitative research done didn't really back up that concern. I remember anecdotally in, in Pittsburgh, it sounded like some people who were given strips actually took them to their dealer to give to other people. So I think sometimes it's surprising how welcomed the flow of information really is. If you have any big lessons that you've learned over the last few years of work at the state level that you feel like you could share or anything that surprised you about working there? Yeah, I've learned a lot about how to operate in this environment and to be really patient. Getting harder (laughs) in some ways. (laughs) I just have like this crazy sense of urgency. I mean, that we're already like too late to do a lot of this work. So probably one of my biggest challenges is how do you bring a sense of urgency to this large flow bureaucracy? So I've been able to like carve out some space to do that. I work for some amazing people within my office and uh, within like the division that I work. They give me a lot of room to be creative and a lot, you know, so I've Uh, worked to earn that trust and be thoughtful about how to talk about harm reduction and advocate for effective resource allocation, such as towards street outreach. And I really had to uh, demonstrate that that was going to be effective and productive, and this is what the research shows, and this is how we can do it in Maryland. And I've had to work towards that and earn trust of people to allow me to (laughs) spend money that way. So that's been, one, a surprise that I would have achieved that, that there is a willingness to be open-minded. And even I've, I brought the idea of fentanyl testing strips to the leadership here, and they were super psyched. And then I called the um, attorney general's office for a legal opinion about it, and they're super excited about it. I'm just like constantly surprised sometimes when there's not resistance <laughs> where you might anticipate it. I get excited and surprised and then motivated, but then you eventually do hit the wall of bureaucracy where it's now, I asked for that legal opinion, it's now taken two weeks for me to get that legal opinion, and I still don't have it. I want to buy strips and hand them on in Baltimore City, and I can't do it yet until I get this legal opinion. Then you start to run up against, like, the slowness of it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm working for government. (laughs) Definitely that push and pull has been really interesting and both exciting when it works out, but then still frustrating to see the pace of things. We've got less opportunities then to perpetuate the cycle. Is there anything that came up for you or that you wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you about? One thing I've I've done in partnership with the HIV prevention part of the department is found a drug user health work group of people within, like across the Department of Health who are working on any program that might touch somebody who uses drugs, you know, like HIV prevention, hepatitis C, STIs, sexually transmitted infections, us in like behavioral health, mental health, health disparities, office, Medicaid is represented now. It's like people who are willing to come together and kind of like agree on a drug user health framework and talk about how we can apply that to our programs a little better, how we can coordinate programs that we have, uh, how to work together on like uh, community capacity building projects. 
Oh, we're, we're planning a, a harm reduction conference this summer. So uh, working together with, again, like a lot of different partners within the department to make that comprehensive and not just focus on opioids or not just focus on overdose prevention, but using kind of this energy around overdose prevention and the funding around it to make sure it's directed towards like the comprehensive needs that people who use drugs have. And that's also something I've drawn from other states, uh, such as New York. Uh, They have a a whole Office of Drug User Health. Iowa and Washington State have specific positions where they coordinate across the department. All of these different partners that I just mentioned who we bring together in kind of a work group um, structure. Again, it kind of aligns with what I said has been frustrating and inspiring about working here is you can kind of push the boundaries and like create a work group, but like how far will the work group get in kind of changing Maryland's official stance on drugs where, you know, meanwhile, we still have some really crazy bills being proposed in the legislature. And when our the department's leadership talks about the state's response, there's three pillars, which are prevention, primary prevention, really, treatments, and uh, data. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no mention of harm reduction whatsoever in any, like, official public thing. Thank you. I'm, like, honored that you thought of me and that you want to hear about government work. <laughs> this is a cool opportunity for me, and I truly, truly appreciate it getting to talk about my experience. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks to KBU Community Radio in Portland for technical assistance, and thanks to Aaron Haas. The intro music is by Adriana Crickle and is licensed for use by a Creative Commons non-commercial license and made available from the Free Music Archive. Outro music is by Monopole, which is also licensed for use by Creative Commons non-commercial license and made available from the Free Music Archive. If you have feedback, comments, suggestions, please get in contact with us at brightsparkharmreduction at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.